The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Good morning. Today's teaching will come from Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 38. And I will be reading verses 5 through 17, and then we will go down to verses 26 through 33. Please stand with me as I read God's Word. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children to Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. Please skip down to verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is God's word. Well, as you just heard, we're going to be in verses 5 through 38 this morning. Our sermon title this morning is just going to be called Announcing the Savior. Announcing the Savior, that is what we see here through uh, what Luke is putting before us with the birth of John the Baptist being announced and then also the birth of Jesus being foretold, being announced. If you want to summarize where we're going this morning, Luke wants us to see something about not only John the Baptist and the way he comes about his birth fulfilling what the Old Testament promised would happen, but namely that the birth announcement of Jesus What's going on with this birth announcement is that it fulfills the promises of God. God's word said something would happen. God's word came to God's people. 
with certain promises. And now Luke is transitioning us forward towards the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. But before we get there, he wants us to see several things that prove to us that Jesus is the qualified Savior of the world. And one of those first credentials, you could say, is this, is that the birth announcement of Jesus fulfills those promises of God, those long-promised words spoken to God's people. The question then is, how are we going to respond to that? And that is what Luke wants us to do. What is going to be our response to this truth that is put before us? He wants us to receive God's word and then respond to it in belief. And so that is what we're going to see this morning from these verses. I'm going to hit pause. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to just help us clearly understand, to hang on these words um, because our lives truly do depend on what God has spoken to his people. And then we'll turn into our text. We'll dive in and see what our God has for us this morning. So let's pray. Father, you are merciful, you are gracious, you are kind, you're faithful, your promises are kept, you are worthy of trust, you abound in steadfast love and faithfulness, you're slow to anger, patience, you're marvelous, worthy of worship. My prayer is that through the preaching of your word, that you would grant the gift of the Spirit's power so that our eyes are open to see Jesus, our minds are open to understand the scriptures before us, the Holy Spirit as as he were, would move us to the edge of our seat to hang on the very words before us because they're not the mere words of a man but they are the words of our God to us his redeemed people and in them we find the sustenance and the nourishment for life and godliness that we need so Lord wake us up wow us with the good news of your promises kept and how they culminate in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, do these things. Stir our hearts to be worshiping hearts, even as we hear your word preached. I cannot do this in my own strength or power. I'm asking you, Holy Spirit, to set me aside, as it were, so that as your word is proclaimed, the people would see the Lord Jesus Christ clearly. It is in his name I pray these things. Amen. Well, if you remember what we saw last week, we looked at the first four verses at the very beginning of Luke's gospel, his prologue. And if you remember what we saw was this, is that Luke has written a book about the life of Christ, who he is, what he came to do, and he has written his book in an orderly way. This isn't just a haphazard data thrown down so that we can just have some neat neat little sayings, some nice little stories about Jesus. What we have is an orderly account of the life of Christ, all so that this purpose might be fulfilled, so that his original audience, Theophilus, and then the early readers of his gospel coming all the way down to you and I here this morning, so that we might hear these things and have certainty, he says, 
certainty concerning the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke's gospel, he will get to the official start of Jesus' public teaching ministry in chapter 4, verse 14. So what that means is, before we get to the start of Jesus' ministry, Luke is obviously providing us a lot of content before that happens. Content that ranges from chapter 1, verse 5, where we are this morning, all the way, obviously, to chapter 4, verse 13. The question is, why so much preloaded content before we get to the public ministry of Jesus? Mark didn't do that. Mark rolls right out. Here's John the Baptist. And then verse 16, chapter 1, you have Jesus saying the kingdom's come and boom, and he's off. Like Mark wastes no time. He just gets right into it. John approaches it differently. Matthew approaches it differently. But Luke, in the different way he approaches it, says, yes, we're going to get to the public teaching ministry of Jesus, but first you need to have some things before you so that you can be certain concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. The question is why? Why all this birth narrative, infants, infancy of Christ, John the Baptist ministry, why do we need this? The answer to the question why all this content first is found by remembering what we said last week concerning Luke's theme that hangs over his whole book. We said if you want to summarize the 24 chapters of Luke's gospel into a sentence, you could say this. He wants us to know that Jesus is the Savior, who makes salvation possible for all people from every nation. He is writing to Gentiles. Jesus is not the Savior of the Jews only. He's the Savior of the Gentiles. So he is the Savior who saves sinners. He is the one who makes salvation possible for all people from every nation. Now, when someone comes along and says, listen, this person can get the job done. There's a job, a task that needs to be fulfilled. And I'm telling you, this person is the one who can fulfill this job. He can get the job done. A good question to ask this person is this. Well, what makes this person qualified to fulfill the task? I know you're saying this person can, can do this, but what credentials do they have which prove that they are the one who can get the job done? I think Luke understands this because he's writing to a Gentile audience, and it's almost as, he's, as if he's going to say, just don't take my word for it. I want you to know I've researched this, I've gone to the eyewitnesses, I've put it in front of you, but don't just say that you believe Jesus is the Savior, because I'm telling you Jesus is the Savior. What I want you to do is understand the credentials that qualify him to be this very Savior. I think Luke knows that some of his readers are asking this kind of question. And so what Luke does is he gives us all this content from chapter 1, verse 5 to chapter 4, 13, almost like a resume. So if someone says, Tom Cheshire can get the job done, I'm like, all right, sounds great. I mean, I'm like, what you're going to do is you're going to write a resume. Here's what qualifies me to do it. I'm going to look at the resume and go, yep, you're qualified. These credentials match. You can, according to this at least, come and meet the job. If you can grasp that concept, then you can grasp the concept of this opening content, all the Christmas story content that we know. What Luke is doing is he's giving us Jesus's resume for why he is the one qualified to be the Savior who makes salvation possible for all people from every nation. 
Thus, as we begin to go forward here from this morning, what you begin to see is that the birth events surrounding Jesus and John the Baptist in chapters 1 and 2 aren't just quaint stories for the Advent season. Luke is giving us substance. He's giving us content so that we can go, man, there's something going on with Jesus. He's not, nor- not normal. He's not, he, he's not the one, just an average guy. There's something uniquely qualifying to him about that. You go forward into John and his ministry preparation that you find in chapter 3. You go to Jesus' baptism, his genealogy, and his temptation that he records in chapter 4. All of this, Luke is saying, comes to us proclaiming one message. Jesus of Nazareth is the long-promised. Jesus of Nazareth is the Old Testament-fulfilling one we've been looking for. Thus, he is the singularly qualified Savior of sinners. So the question then is this. How am I going to respond to what Luke is putting before us? Because this is God's word to us. A lot of the Old Testament and the promises of God come funneling down into these opening birth announcements. And what he wants us to see is this. God has spoken his word to his people and it over and over again proves Jesus is the one who is qualified to be the savior of the world. He doesn't want us just to go, well, that's some really interesting facts. And then just set Jesus on the shelf and move on down the line. Luke has the goal, remember what we said last week, of you receiving God's word and believing it. And then not only believing it, but then turning around and going and proclaiming it. But he knows you're not going to proclaim what you don't believe. And so he's establishing why you should believe why Jesus is the Savior of the world so that we'll eventually go out convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that others need to know about how Jesus is the Savior of the world. So this is why Luke opens his gospel in the way that he does, with two parallel accounts of how God's word came to Zechariah and the way Zechariah responded to God's word in unbelief and the way God's word came to Mary and Mary received it and responded to God's word with belief. Because he's saying that's really what it boils down to, Luke says. It really does come down to one of two things. We hear God's promise-keeping word and we say, no, thank you, I do not believe that. Or we hear God's promise-keeping word and we say, I do believe that and my life will be ordered according to my belief. This is what we see as we march into the door of Luke chapter 1 verse 5. We first see the life of Zechariah, and starting in verse 5, we notice an announcement that's going to end in unbelief. That's what you can encapsulate verses 5 through 25 in. It's an announcement that ends ultimately in unbelief. Luke writes there, starting in verse 5, that in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. He was a priest of the division of Abijah. And he also had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God. Both were walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But notice something. But they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren. And both Zechariah and Elizabeth 
were advanced in years. So before Luke gets to Jesus, he's going to back it up a notch and he's going to turn our focus to two people, Zechariah and Elizabeth. As Luke carefully notes, the following events all happened in the days of Herod, king of Judea. So here we go. Historian Luke is anchoring the redemption story of God with real world events. He says, remember those days when Herod the great, when he was king of Judea and the Gentiles were like, well, of course we remember that. And then he says, well, if you know that, then what you understand is this, that that was the time when God was invading our time-space capsule, and this is when the redemption story was no longer on pause, but it was beginning to unfold and go forward. When he tells us that the story of God is unfolding in the days of Herod, it's a not-so-subtle reminder that Luke's work, it's not fairy tale, it's not myth, this is real-life stuff. He's talked to the eyewitnesses. It's historical, he says, but more than just being historical, he says you need to know that when God invaded the lives of Zachariah and Elizabeth, there was something not just historical, but there was something extremely significant going on. Something significant surrounding these events about a priest named Zachariah and his barren wife named Elizabeth. Events that proved to be the entry point where God is breaking 400 years of prophetic silence. The last time where the prophets were talking was through the prophet Malachi. From Malachi to these events on page right before you was a 400 time period. I know we, we are bad at grasping time, but if you just think about the lifespan of our very country, we're nowhere near that. And our country's been around for a while, I would argue. So imagine the lifespan of our country where the overall movement of hearing from God has been like this. No act of speaking. Just what we have written down. Then all of a sudden, little old Zachariah from a seemingly podunk part of the country finds himself serving at the temple and then God says to Gabriel, the time is now. The silence is over. The redemption story is marching forward. Zooming in on Zechariah and Elizabeth, we learn from Luke that they were both righteous before God. Both righteous before God. This refers to their standing in God's sight. What you could say then is this, is that they were justified before God, declared right with God because God, by sovereign decree, says, you are right with me. Old Testament believers, in other words, they are trusting in the promises of God for salvation from a Savior. They are looking forward, though, because the Savior hasn't come yet. We do the same thing. We're justified by grace through faith in Jesus. Our faith looks backward. Their faith is looking forward. Luke tells us that these two people, Zechariah and Elizabeth, are justified, right, declared right with God because they are truly clinging to the promises of God for salvation found in Him alone. That is who we have before us. And then he says, notice the fruit of their justification. Their justification fruit is seen in that they both walk blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. These Old Testament believers are justified and they submit their lives 
to their God, like Father Abraham, who believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, so this couple is seen as the same. Yet notice that Luke adds in that there's a sad note, though, that hangs over the entirety of their life. They are advanced in years, yet they had no child. They had no child. Again, that lands on us, our modern ears, and we're sort of like, eh, you know. But in the culture of the day, to be childless was to be seen as very not good. Later, Elizabeth is going to say at the conception of John that her reproach has been taken away. There was a kind of reproach that was laid at the feet of a woman who was childless. But yet here she is, Elizabeth. No child because she was barren. And then Luke tells us that both were advanced in years, meaning that any hope of having children had come and gone. It wasn't like she's 20 and there might be a little bit of hope. Like menopause, come gone. There's just no hope. What she has wanted did not come. Infertility is what she knew. And the crushing dreams of a house filled with children so that she could mother and care for them never came to fruition. To be counted as righteous like Abraham, if you were to so like Babel hop in your DeLorean to go back in time to grab Zachariah, Elizabeth, bring him forward, roll him out on stage to say, hey, you know, Luke is going to write some stuff about you and he's going to tell us that, that you were counted as righteous before God like Father Abraham. What do you, what do you think about that? And he, I, they would not be like, well, man, that's the worst thing in the world. They said, no, that's a good thing. Like as a good Jew, like it is a dream to be known as someone who is counted as righteous like Father Abraham. But no Jew would want to be in the place, other place where Father Abraham was and Sarah was. Remember, they too were barren. They would want Abraham and Sarah's righteousness applied to them, but they would not want Abraham and Sarah's infertility. Yet, this is where Zechariah and Elizabeth find themselves. But notice that this point, this place, advanced in years, Zechariah and Elizabeth, it's exactly here where they find themselves. They are righteous before God, yet they are childless. They are trusting in God's gracious salvation. This is what Luke says, yet learning that the grace of God, it exempts no one from trial and hardship and suffering and bitter disappointment. You can be saved by grace through faith in Christ and yet know a life of suffering, trial, hardship, broken dreams, bitter disappointments, tears that you eat on your pillow at night because life is not going the way you want it to go. Luke is saying Zachariah and Elizabeth are this kind of couple. For decades, imagine, fervent prayers for a child would have been prayed, surely. Lord, can, can now be the time? What about now? Can this be the time? I know you said now, no, a decade ago, but maybe this could be the time. Elizabeth turning into her 40s, 45, creeping on the door of 50, got the windows closing. Is, is now the time? I'm begging you, please, just one, one child now. 
No, 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 no. This is what they were hearing in response to their prayers. And with the passage of time, I'm assuming that these unanswered prayers for a child probably would have transitioned into prayers of, well, why not? Any of you have ever been there before? Yeah? Praying prayers? God, please? God, can you? I know you can. You're sovereign. You're in control. You're omnipotent, all-powerful. You have the ability. You spoke words and created everything out of nothing. You have what it takes to invade my world and to bring this about for reasons that we don't always know. God, in his timing, says, I'm answering your prayer, but I'm answering with a no. And anyone who's alive right now listening to my words has been on the receiving end of a prayer that came back from the Father as a no, and the next prayer that came out of our mouth was what? Why? Why? And then at some point in time, I am positive those transitioned prayers of why eventually became prayers of God, where in the world are you even at? Are my prayers breaking the ceiling above me? Do you even hear what I'm saying? One child, everyone else is having them. Why infertility for us? Why this trial for us? Why this disappointment for us? Why this bitterness for us? Why, God, where are you in the midst of these things? You see, in such moments like this, in the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth, or in the moments of life where you and I have found ourselves, maybe not in their exact situation, situation, but a similar kind of situation where there are moments of extended and quite possible lifelong suffering and disappointment. We are forced into one of two positions when these things come home to roost and land in our lap. When the God will use turns into no, and then our questions of prayers say why, and then they eventually, after an extended amount of time, turn into God, where are you? We will go one of two directions in that suffering and in that disappointment. We will drift into one of two positions. We will either go the route of cynicism, and we'll go the route of coldness, of heart, Because we eventually draw the conclusion that God cannot be trusted. God does not hear my prayer. God does not care. God is not who I thought he was. Our hearts grow cold. We become cynical and we begin to drift. Or in those moments, extended, quite possible, lifelong moments of suffering and disappointment and bitterness and trial, we walk by faith. Like Zachariah and Elizabeth, righteous, blameless, extreme disappointment in their life. And they go deeper and deeper into true depth with God that collapses into ever-deepening trust. You see, saints, we can go around and profess belief in a lot of things. There's things, though, that we believe in our heart that we don't always profess. 
And it's moments like this with what we say with our mouth and what we believe in our heart, our professed belief and our heart belief. In moments like this, something happens when that extended suffering, the extended trial, the extended disappointment comes. And it's not just seasons, it's not just years, but it's decades of just what we would not hope for is what we find ourselves in. And in these seasons of life, we can say, God, you're good. God, you're kind. God, you're sovereign. God, you're powerful. God, you're gracious. God, you love. God, you care with our mouth. But then when we don't necessarily get what we want, or we say, God, I really think you would receive the glory and the honor if you acted in this way. And God says, I know what you're saying, but that's not quite the case. And so you're going to get a no from me right now. What we profess with our mouth will either collapse into alignment with what we believe because we truly believe that if we receive a no from the Father, he's still good, he's still sovereign, he's still kind, he's still gracious, he's still merciful. Or some of us, we've seen it before, where we say what we say with our mouths and then disappointment, suffering, trial comes and we do this. It breaks apart. Maybe I don't really believe what I've professed all these years. Luke is telling us that while righteous and blameless Zechariah and Elizabeth are trusting in God for salvation, they are simultaneously trusting in God in the midst of bitter disappointment. Yes? Anyone ever been there before? Luke tells us that Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're in that category. Barren yet blameless before God. Childless yet trusting in the Lord. And what's so amazing is that as Luke begins to unfurl the story before us, is that beyond the bitter disappointment of unfulfilled hopes and through tears of broken dreams, God is at work working out his perfect plan of grace. They can't see it, but just because they can't see it doesn't mean it's not happening. And Luke is now telling us there is something more going on to the barrenness of Zechariah and Elizabeth that they could never see and could not in a million years have possibly dreamt that we are going to somehow be like the heroes of old, Abraham and Sarah, as it relates to our barrenness and God's perfect plan of grace. He is using this couple's barrenness and God is using this couple's brokenness to show forth his miraculous power and to witness to the world that his final plan of redemption is now at hand in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, we learn that in the pain of our own trials, in the pain of our own sufferings, our limited perspective is not always able to grasp the good plans of God. There's just times when disappointment comes and unanswered prayers are what we know. And we quickly, with human eyes, cast judgment on God saying, you don't know if you're truly good, you would have acted in this way. And because you didn't act this way, I draw the conclusion, you're not good. Zachariah and Elizabeth are not operating in this way. They are still fully trusting that while no to children was what they knew, that God was still worthy of being called good, trusted to be trustworthy, not malignant, 
but sovereign in his goodness. And this is where we find them. This is what Zechariah comes to learn, starting there in verse 8. When Luke says that while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, Zechariah is going to learn what we just talked about. Because God's time is the right time. Luke says that he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. The people were outside praying, and while Zechariah was performing his duties, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord. When he saw the angel, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel says to Zechariah, Do not be afraid, for your prayer has been heard. The question is, well, what prayer? What prayer has been heard? I'm arguing that it was Zechariah's prayer for a child because verse 13 goes on to show your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Notice that anytime you see an angel interacting with a human being, they basically melt into a puddle. They're always troubled and fearful. This isn't chicken soup for the soul, New Testament. This is the reality. When you see one of the flaming ones, you don't like high-five them and fist pump. You fall. You're troubled. Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. What prayer? The prayer for your child. And what you need to know is because this prayer has been heard, your wife Elizabeth is going to bear you a son. You're going to call his name John. No doubt this is a prayer he had often prayed. And no doubt that as he and his wife grew advanced in years, this is a prayer Zechariah had long ceased to pray, believing he had prayed in vain because no immediate answer came to his prayer. How many times have we ever been there before? Everyone, anyone ever been there before? Pray a prayer, pray a prayer, pray a prayer, year, month, day, week, decade, and then you eventually just draw the conclusion, you know what? I don't think anything is ever going to happen with this. And then we drop the prayer. What we're learning right here is that every prayer we pray is heard even if we cease to pray it because my hunch is Zachariah begins to work because the way he answers here in a little bit is like when he was no longer physically able to have children, my hunch is he just stopped praying the prayer. Like, why pray the prayer? There's just no way it can happen. But what do we learn from the angel here who's speaking God's Word, uh, your prayer has been heard, and your prayer is now going to be answered in a way you could never possibly have imagined. Can I just encourage you with this real quick? Some of us are praying prayers like that. You're praying those impossible prayers because I think that is a good and right way to pray. Don't grow weary in doing good in the hard work of consistent, persistent prayer. When days become weeks and weeks become months and months become years and years become decades, you're praying the prayer, you're praying the prayer, you're praying the prayer, you're praying the prayer, seemingly nothing, seemingly nothing, seemingly nothing. Let me encourage you with this. God hears your prayer. God knows how to best answer that prayer. Don't grow weary in doing good because what we see here is while we might think, man, I'm going to stop praying for this neighbor. I'm going to stop praying for my child. I'm going to I'm no longer going to share the gospel with this person. Because, why? Because they're just they're so hardened. They're never going to respond to the gospel. They're never going to hear. The situation is never going to change through the eyes of what I can see and perceive at a merely human level. This seems like a lost cause. And then God speaks and reminds us 
as he's going to remind Mary here in a little bit. Nothing is impossible with him. So don't stop. Persist in praying. As Zacharias stands before God's angelic messenger, we learn something. Just as he learns something that when we pray, God hears our prayers and in his timing knows the best possible way to answer those prayers. And what does Zechariah learn? He learns that in answer to his prayer, he and Elizabeth will have joy and gladness as will many others at the birth of his son. That's verse 14. Why all this joy and gladness and rejoicing? Because in fulfillment of the prophet Malachi, the promised Elijah-like figure to come, I'm telling you, a promised Elijah-like figure that Zechariah would know about as a priest. He would know his Old Testament and he would know the promise of God, sort of like signing off closing quote of Yahweh to his people was, there's going to be someone who comes, he's going to come in the power of the spirit of Elijah, and he's going to do some crazy, amazing things and preparing the way for the Savior to come. So when he shows up on the scene, turn your eyes to the horizon and look out because the Savior that has been long promised is about to come. Oh, by the way, Zechariah, your son is going to be that one. In answer to your prayer. Blows his mind, I'm positive. It will be John who is great before the Lord, he says. It will be John who will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. It will be John, his son, the son who he was praying for, will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah, turning the hearts of fathers to the children. It will be John who makes ready for the Lord a prepared people. Malachi spoke the word of God to the people of God, and now God's word is being spoken through the angel Gabriel to Zechariah. But what is Zechariah's response? Unbelief. Unbelief. Notice there when Zechariah says what he says in verse 14, when he says, how shall I know this? He's in essence saying, how can this be trusted right now? I'm not sure this can be trusted right now. Do you really want me to believe this? How do I know this is what he's thinking? Because he says, I'm an old man. My wife's advanced in years. You're telling us how we're going to have a baby. I know how babies work, and those parts don't work anymore. How can this be? God, your word has come. I processed it. Don't believe it. That's where Zachariah is at right now. I don't know how he caught to this place. He is righteous before the Lord. He walks blamelessly, but he's struggling right now. It could either be from the evidence of his own eyes. He's looking at his wife advanced in years. He looks in the mirror and sees a man who's advanced in years. As I just said, he knows how babies are made. And he's just like, listen, this physically isn't going to work. So it could be that he's questioning with unbelief God's word because of the evidence from a human perspective. What seems like will be impossible to happen. Or maybe it's just the numbness of all those years of crushed dreams and unanswered prayers. Anyone ever been there before? Prayed, 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 unanswered, 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 at least not answered in ways we want. Our hearts become numb and dull to the things of God and we eventually come to the place, yeah, I don't know if we can trust him anymore. That can lead us to the sin of unbelief. And what we see is that the sin of unbelief has creeped in and it is where Zechariah is at now. According to human reason, Zechariah cannot see how the promises of God can be possible. And that right there is the problem. From a human perspective, he can't see how it can happen. 
far too often when God's word makes no sense. Rather than trusting nothing will be impossible with God, as the angel says to Mary, we instead jettison God's word in unbelief because we sit in judgment over God's promises and say, according to John Davis, I don't see God how you can do this. Ergo, the conclusion I draw is you're not worthy to be trusted. Instead of walking in a way where we say God's word is God's word, God is not a liar, God is good. And when God says what he says, he means what he says. When he means what he says, he's not telling a lie because he's not telling a lie. I'm going to trust him because he's only ever proven himself to be trustworthy because he always keeps his word. So while I may not be able to see how this promise is going to be fulfilled, I am not going to sit in judgment over God and his word. I'm going to happily submit myself to God and his word and walk in a manner of trust. Walk in a manner of faith. Notice that as Luke continues on, it is in stark contrast to Zechariah's story as he transitions over to Mary. So now as you go into Mary, starting in verse 26, instead of an announcement that ends in unbelief, what we see is an announcement that ends in belief. Luke literally rinses and repeats. It's the second verse, same as the first. He's going to say, God's word came to another person, came to Mary. And guess how she responds? Not like Zachariah with unbelief, but with belief. Look at verse 26. Six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy, what do we find? The angel Gabriel, he's dispatched yet again from the throne room of heaven. Sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. There's the historicity of it again. Who does he come to? A virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. That's a little foreshadowing. And who was this virgin? None other than the woman Mary. In similar ways, Gabriel makes himself known to her. Notice the parallel. Like Zechariah, she is met by an angel when he says, Greetings, O favorable one, the Lord is with you. Like Zechariah, Mary was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Like Zechariah, the angel comforts her in nearly the same way. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you're going to conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Like the birth announcement of John, Jesus' announcement is chock full of Old Testament fulfillment. Well, John will be great before God. Jesus is just going to flat out be great. Because <laughs> he is God. Jesus is going to be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God is going to give to Jesus the throne of his father, David. Jesus will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of Jesus' kingdom, there will be no end. Imagine hearing that about the baby that's about to be in your womb. All of these, what are these? Remember, don't lose sight. This is the Savior's resume that's being put out before us right now. What is Luke doing? Luke isn't doing this so he can wow you with the aptitude of his Old Testament knowledge. He's doing this so you can have certainty. Remember that promise of God? 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 Fulfilled in Jesus, fulfilled in Jesus, fulfilled in Jesus, fulfilled in Jesus. He is the credentialed one, qualified to be the Savior of the world. Also, like Zechariah, notice that Mary asks a question in response to the word of God from the angel. But here's where the, different, the similarities end. Because unlike Zechariah, her question is not born out of unbelief, but is actually born out of belief. Unlike Zechariah, she readily accepts Gabriel's explanation that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. 
Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. I would argue out of the two explanations the angel gave to Zechariah and to Mary, Mary's is the harder one to believe. Zechariah, you're going to go home and do what husbands and wives do, and you're going to have a baby. It's like, okay, that's, that's a little bit more in the realm of believability. But he struggles with it because of what his human eyes perceive. Mary is being told that you're going to have a baby not in the way that women have babies. It's going to be the Holy Spirit coming upon you and the power of the Most High overshadowing you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Like Sarah of old, Elizabeth's conception is a miracle from God, but far surpassing this mighty work stands the virgin conception as the overshadowing power of the Spirit creates new life in Mary's womb. Truly, nothing is impossible with God. Amen? Truly, nothing is impossible with God. When God speaks, He says what He means, and He means what He says. His promises will come to pass. Notice the word will. Go back into this text this afternoon and do homework, grab a pencil, and read every time it says God will. This will happen. This will take place. This will come about. Will is the language of promise. It shall come to pass. It cannot not come to pass because God is saying it will. With Him who called the world into being and formed it out of nothing, everything is possible. There is no sin too black and bad to be pardoned. There is no heart too hard and wicked to be changed. There is no work too hard for a believer to do. There is no trial too hard that it cannot be withstood. There is no promise too great to be fulfilled. There is no difficulty too great for a believer to overcome. In the words of one commentator, faith... Faith never rests so calmly and peacefully as when it lays its head on the pillow of God's omnipotence. Faith never rests so calmly and peacefully as when it lays its head on the pillow of God's omnipotence. Imagine Mary hearing The Spirit's going to come upon you. The power of the Most High overshadow you. That is how you're going to come to bear this child, virgin conception. And what does she do? Lays down her head, rests calmly and peacefully on the omnipotence, the all-powerfulness of God because truly nothing will be impossible with God. This is exactly where Mary is at as she responds to God's promise-keeping word with belief. What is her response at the end of it all? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Translation, I believe it. And because this is what you have said is going to happen, I trust you. And I'm going to align my life in line with what you, God, have said. What is she doing? Calmly, peacefully, laying her head down on the pillow of God's omnipotence. She asks no further questions. Mary raises no further objections. What we see is just submission to God's word and belief in God's promises. 
Friends, the promises of God concerning His forever kingdom, His promises concerning His forever king have been realized in the Lord Jesus Christ. Zechariah's failure to embrace God's promises stands as a warning to us. And Mary's humble response serves as our example. Luke's opening challenge in his gospel drives us all the way back to our first question. So where are you at in regard to these things? How are you going to respond to the word of God that Luke is laying out before us? My hope and my prayer is that by the power of God that he leads us down the path of belief, Mary-like trust in the promise-keeping God who can be trusted to do everything he says he can and will do. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are so good. So, so very good. Father, thank you for the gift of Luke seeking to put before us the orderly account of Christ's life so that we can be challenged to ask the question, when God says and speaks and reveals, do I walk in unbelief or do I walk in belief? Lord, where we are struggling to believe. Lord, would you help us in our unbelief? Lord, where we are walking in belief, trusting, taking your word for what it is. Lord, would you humble our hearts to say thank you, God, for the gift of even being able to walk with trust and belief in you. Lord, open our eyes to see Jesus clearly this week. May our lives align in such a way to where what we say and profess to believe and what we believe in our heart of hearts are so overlapped and so overlined that people would see Christ in us every step of the way. Jesus, it's in your name that I pray these things. Amen.